Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. You're listening to a Mamma Mia podcast. From Mamma Mia, hi, I'm Claire Murphy. Welcome to The Quickie, getting you up to speed daily. The war in Ukraine started nearly two weeks ago now, and already in a world that has suffered a pandemic, natural disasters and all amounts of other personal tragedies, those not instigating it want to know when and how it will end already, which is hopefully soon, and hopefully with the best outcome for limited loss of life. But in our rush to find out how this invasion finishes, we also have to accept that some of those potential outcomes aren't the ones we're hoping for. Today, we look at all the ways in which Vladimir Putin's war may come to a close. The good, the bad, and the very, very ugly. Depending on the day, the hour and the weather, either side in the Russia-Ukraine conflict is winning or losing. As Russian tanks rolled into the territory, we heard stories of incredible resistance from the Ukrainian military and the country's citizens, with people standing in front of Russian convoys or standing up to Russian soldiers. For example, this woman, who was hailed a hero for giving something to the Russian soldiers she encountered on the street. Who are you? We have exercises here. Please go this way. What kind of exercises? Are you Russian? Yes. So what the f*** are you doing here? Right now, our discussion will lead to nothing. Your occupants, your fascists, what the f*** are you doing on our land with all these guns? Take these seeds and put them in your pocket so at least sunflowers will grow when you all lie down here. We've seen convoys halted due to the weather conditions, stuck in mud on the side of the road as Russian soldiers, who are reportedly starving from their lack of food and unable to go around the stuck vehicles as they run out of fuel, attempt to continue the push into their neighbouring country. While we see footage of protests inside Russia where citizens risk their lives to show any resistance to the regime, elderly activist Yelena Osipova, who survived the Nazi siege of Leningrad, was arrested for holding up signs at a protest against the invasion of Ukraine. Russian authorities have also jailed children as young as seven for protesting. On the flip side, we hear the results of a poll that supposedly shows up to 70% of people in Russia support the invasion. They see it as President Vladimir Putin protecting Russia from a Western invasion. They've been shown stories for years of growing fascism in the neighbouring country and say a recent speech from Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky where he discussed the Budapest Memorandum, a 1994 agreement where Ukraine gave up its huge post-Soviet nuclear arsenal of more than 1,000 warheads in return for protection from the US, UK and Russia as now being defunct due to the Russian invasion, they see it as actually a threat of nuclear war. This Russian POW speaking from Ukraine just this week explains what they were told before the invasion. We were told that, literally, I'm 100% wrong now. Ukraine's territory is dominated by fascist regime, nationalists. Nazis have seized power 
and ordinary people need some help to get rid of this yoke. A diplomatic end to this war has so far not been found, with both sides recently agreeing to a ceasefire in the city of Mariupol so that citizens could be evacuated through humanitarian corridors. But after it began, there were reports Russian troops began shelling almost immediately, sending people back into bomb shelters across the city. A second attempt to call a temporary truce also failed, leaving people terrified for their lives. Russian authorities blamed Ukrainian soldiers, saying they were sabotaging the ceasefire to make it look like it was Russia. So how does all this end? And why are Russian troops taking over nuclear power stations in the process? John Blacksland is a professor of international security and intelligence studies at the Australian National University's Strategic and Defence Studies Centre in Canberra. He has extensive experience in the intelligence community, including postings to East Timor, Thailand, Myanmar and Washington, D.C. He's the principal author of the three-volume official history of the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, or ASIO, and a one-time official historian of the Australian Signals Directorate. John, there are so many theories as to how this conflict will end at the moment. From where we stand right now... What are the chances Putin will win this and install a puppet pro-Russian government in place of Zelensky's democratically elected one? So that's becoming less and less likely as time goes by. That appears to have been his intention in the first couple of days when they sought to capture the airport near Kiev and insert special forces to remove or capture Zelensky and then install a puppet government. That is now well and truly, that horse is well and truly bolted. Even were they to capture and or kill Slensky, the resistance now is too great. The damage done to goodwill towards Russia is, I believe, so profound that that outcome is just not any longer feasible. Well, you mentioned the resistance there. Another option is that Ukraine resistance continues and that this becomes a protracted war, that Russian forces eventually will have to leave just as they've done and other invading forces have done in other countries because it just sucks up all resources. The Ukrainian armed forces have spent the last eight years kind of looking to renovate and heighten their operational focus. They have similar equipment to the Russians. They have similar doctrine and tactical procedures. So one for one, they're pretty much on a par, but they have the home ground advantage What we're facing is the situation where Russia's army, having miscalculated the opening salvos of this war, is now having to regroup, recalibrate, readjust and plan for a much more prolonged campaign. That's happening while the economic sanctions are being imposed, the likes of which most pundits are now saying Vladimir Putin had not anticipated and the damage to the Russian economy will be considerably more profound than he had anticipated. So there's going to be growing pressure for some kind of compromise. We know that in addition to the enduring Ukraine armed force capability, there is considerable assistance coming from Europe and other NATO countries and beyond, including Australia, and that is really biting. It's really having a very negative effect on the Russian ability to operate freely and on Russian morale. So the combination of all of that makes me think that even if they were to capture Kiev and seize that, 
and remove Zelensky from power. The rest of the country is not just going to roll over. This is not some neat decapitation in the capital that's going to see the country flip. This is now much more complicated, much more difficult, and actually much more akin to what happened when the then Soviet Union invaded Finland in 1939. I think there's a parallel there for what the future might hold for Ukraine. No one is seriously contemplating offering Ukraine NATO membership, but nobody wants to see Putin win and get the reward for his ill-conceived, ill-thought-through and dastardly plans. So the combination of factors with the resolve of the West, particularly NATO countries and others like Australia, to continue to support Ukraine and the forces that remain free with considerable freedom of action outside of the range of Russian ground forces, and that likely will continue for some time. So even if Kiev was to fall, even if the Russian forces continue to consolidate their grip on the coast of the Black Sea, reaching up from Crimea up to the northeast towards about two o'clock, if you look at it from a clock up towards Mariupol, linking up with the Donbass and Luhansk area. And if you go to the west, they're now pushing out towards Odessa. But there's considerable resistance in that area in Odessa and beyond. There's concern, obviously, also about the prospect of perhaps an amphibious lodgment. The Russian Navy has considerable forces in the Black Sea, but it's not a surprise. Amphibious operations work when it's a surprise. Otherwise, you get a lot of bloodshed. So amphibious lodgements are very, very tricky and fraught activities. So it's not at all clear that Russia is going to come out with a convincing win here. My sense is that should they muster the resolve, and there's some important variables here yet, the resolve is very much in question, actually. Russian resolve is when you hear the reports of relatively senior officers being killed and lots of conscripts and soldiers extremely demoralised and lacking resolve, in part because they weren't told that this was going to happen. No one in Russia was prepped for this because Vladimir Putin, not only was he lying to the West, he was lying to the Russian people. So we have a toxic brew here that leaves Russia poorly placed to consolidate the progress it's made and leaves the Ukrainians with considerable morale, even though they may not get the no-fly zone that they've been calling for, they still are in a relatively strong position, able to use drones, able to use anti-air and anti-tank weapons, the likes of which the Russians simply can't effectively counter. It means that this is not over yet by a considerable margin. Now, there's been a lot of question about why other countries haven't stepped in by sending troops, and in part that is linked to NATO, of course, because Ukraine is not a NATO-backed country. But what are the chances that someone else will step in and help Ukraine with a physical presence in the country? There's enormous reluctance for countries to formally commit to assisting Ukraine against Russia. The no-fly zone discussion is symptomatic of that, because if you put NATO forces directly up against Russian forces, that is a significant escalation, and Vladimir Putin has threatened to basically go nuclear if that happens. Now, I suspect what we saw on Friday with the attack on the nuclear plant in southeastern Ukraine was a signal that this is where he's prepared to go. He's prepared to escalate, not necessarily with the dropping of an atomic bomb, but by 
generating one from existing infrastructure. Stop firing at the nuclear facility. Immediately stop firing. You are endangering the safety of the entire world. The operation of a crucial part of Zaporizhia's plant could be damaged. We will not be able to restore it. There's, you know, a dozen nuclear power plants across Ukraine, and that presents an opportunity for him to exploit. But it's a really awful proposition because you're then really, really turning the hearts and minds of the people, the local Ukrainians, against you. Is there opportunity for a diplomatic solution here? We've already seen two rounds of peace talks that haven't come to any kind of agreement. There was a ceasefire that was agreed on that then seemingly failed. What are our chances of a diplomatic solution? So a diplomatic solution is what's required. The point is that Putin either has to go or has to be convinced that this is the best deal that Russia can get. And I think the person best placed to convince him of that is actually President Xi. And the question is whether he sees it in his interests to take that path. NATO countries have been appealing for this for weeks. Emmanuel Macron has gone to Russia, to Moscow, to meet with Putin to discuss this and been kept at more than arm's length distance at the other end of tables. Similarly, Olaf Scholz has tried and the United States and others have tried. Interesting to see how Turkey is engaging on this front too. Turkey has turned out to be a more significant player in this equation than most pundits had previously given credit. The Turkish drones are proving to be quite a a game changer in terms of aerial support for Ukrainian forces encountering Russian manoeuvre. And it looks like Turkey is supplying additional drones to Ukraine, which is enabling the Ukrainians to sustain their rate of effort against Russian vehicle convoys, you know, lined up along those roads we've seen satellite photos of. A very significant capability enhancement. But in addition to that, of course, they've blocked the Bosporus, which is their right to do according to the international treaty. Turkey has a right to block belligerents from use of it. And that is deeply frustrating for Russia who have sought to reinforce their position in the Black Sea with elements that have come from around the world through the Mediterranean and they're now bobbing in the Mediterranean waiting for access to get into the Black Sea. So Turkey has played an interesting hand here because it's been a NATO member for a long time but has been soliciting closer relations with Russia for some time now. It's bought S-400 missile systems. It's been playing a collaborative game with Russia on a number of issues that has been very irritating to the United States and NATO member countries. And yet here we see Turkey with its own calculus of its national interests, seeing that it does not want to see Ukraine collapse and it does not want to see Russia get a stronger hand around the edges of the Black Sea that would impinge on Turkish freedom of action. Very interesting dynamics at play. And we're seeing a lot of other countries that, you know, a week and a half ago would have not shown nearly the kind of resolve that is being shown now. And here I'm thinking Sweden, Finland, Switzerland even, Switzerland for crying out loud, stayed neutral throughout the Second World War, not a NATO member, but is now coming out clearly in support of the NATO side against Russia. 
And this is an extraordinary turnabout that is really, you can only really blame Vladimir Putin for this because he's the one who has incensed the world by his actions. So in war, morale is a very important factor. And Putin's approach, his secretive, obsessive, controlling approach and his Machiavellian cleverness but overcooked has left Russians unsettled and wondering what they're doing and why, and left Ukrainians with more resolve than ever, bolstered by the efforts of countries around the world, including from Australia, to boost their capabilities and bolster their morale. And that is extraordinary, because when you think about it, Russia's forces, yes, they're bigger than Ukraine's, but they're not that much bigger than Ukraine's. And if you're going to control a country as the you know, Americans and the Russians experienced in Afghanistan, you need a lot of troops to do that in a situation where you're not that welcome. And here we are, where in Ukraine, the Russians are demonstrably not welcome, except in pockets where they've got Russian nationals in Donbass and Luhansk and Crimea. But even there, I would contend there must be a lot of soul searching going on about whether or not this is helpful or hindering their cause. John, there are some voices who are starting to say that potentially this could be Putin's undoing, that it could lead to him losing power in Russia. Do you think that's a possibility? It is definitely a possibility, but the problem is that the way governance is set up in Moscow today, it all revolves around him. And he has been masterful at orchestrating the oligarchs to be beholden to him, afraid of him, and afraid of each other. So it's kind of a perfect storm. No one's in a position to easily challenge him or to muster a coalition of like-minded oligarchs, if you like, to say, enough's enough, Vladimir, let's roll this back. And there is a kind of view out there developing that what's called for is the Beria moment. Beria was a member of the Politburo back in the day in the 50s who was a skunk, you know, an obnoxious piece of work who was threatening to unravel policies and actions that the Soviet Union was implementing in a vain pursuit of his own priorities and his own preferences to gain power. One of his colleagues simply put a bullet between his ears and that ended it. Uh, This is the kind of ugliness that we're now butting up against in Russia because the mechanisms for accountability, for checks and balances that we take for granted in a liberal Western democracy like Australia which we're happy to criticise on a whole range of levels for so many things, but we take for granted just how robust our democracy is. The checks and balances are really consequential and they're absent in Russia today, much like they're absent in China today. This manifestation of violence coming from an authoritarian state, um, it's up to what's happening between the ears of one man. And that is a scary thought when that man becomes paranoid, obsessive and extremely power-hungry. After we spoke to John, Ukraine and Russia held a third sit-down to discuss a diplomatic end to this crisis. Again, there was no resolution. However, progress was made on evacuations, the Ukrainian advisor to the president saying he hopes safe corridors for civilians would be fully functional very soon. However, there was some pushback on the Russian version of those humanitarian corridors, which would only permit citizens to evacuate to Russia itself or to their ally Belarus, 
Ukrainian President Zelensky rejected this proposal, and French President Emmanuel Macron accused Putin of hypocrisy for making promises to protect civilians so they could flee only to Russia, saying, I don't know many Ukrainians who want to go to Russia. Moscow, though, has made it clear that the only way in which they will end this invasion is if Ukraine submits to their demands, which includes ceasing all military action, changing their constitution to guarantee neutrality, which means not joining any protective blocs like the EU or NATO. They want Ukraine to recognise Crimea as Russian territory and the independence of the two eastern separatist states. But Ukraine has made it clear they will not be bending to Putin anytime soon. That's the quickie for today. This episode was produced by myself, Claire Murphy, and our executive producer, Siobhan Moran-McFarlane, with audio production by Ian Camilleri. Mamma Mia acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures.